It's hard to believe that I started this series on Ephesians over a month ago, and the sermon that I'm giving today was the one that I had prepared uh, a month ago when we had to suddenly head off to Melbourne. Uh, In our first sermon from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, the first 15 verses, it talked about how we are all adopted and sons and daughters of the living God and how special we are to be children of God. Now, I read a story of a man whose name was Victor, but he didn't feel special. In fact, instead of feeling like a victor, he felt like a loser. And he left school at 16 when one of his teachers suggested that he leave and get a job. But by the time he was 32, he had failed in 76 different jobs. But part of his interview for job number 77 was an IQ test. A score of 100 is normal for an IQ test. But Victor scored 161 and was classified as a genius. That fact changed his life. Victor Serienko became famous for his research in laser surgery. He became a president of Mensa, which is an organization for geniuses, all because he did a test that said that he was special. Every one of us is unique. We are all special to God. Back in the 1970s in New Zealand, a couple of scruffy, hippie believers went on a preaching tour throughout the country. And Marcus Arden was one of those two men. He had long hair, a long beard, and alternative clothing. Some Christians took offense at the way that he looked But God used this man mightily. Sometimes we may not be comfortable with what God may be doing in someone else's life. We want God to do things our way, the way that we like. But God wants to welcome and encourage others. We're not to make clones of ourselves or force them to fit with our agendas because God is a creative God. And everyone is special and important to him. So our study this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23. And this is a prayer of the Apostle Paul while he was in prison for the church of his day. And so he starts off in verse 16 by saying, I have never stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Imagine if you had someone like the Apostle Paul who was praying for you every day, a guy with a real close relationship with the Lord whose prayers were heard and answered. And then he goes on to say, to talk about the three main things that he prays for. He says that he has prayed that these people will, will understand and know three things. The first thing was that they would know God better. And this can be Paul's prayer for us. 
or our prayer for each other. Number one, that we will come to know God better. Secondly, that we will know the hope to which he has called us. What are we doing on the planet? We have an eternal hope in heaven. What is God's vision for our life? And the third thing is that we would know God's incomparably great power. Are we aware as individuals and as a church of the incomparably great power of God? And we're going to discuss those three things this morning. You know, the, the Greek word for know, to know something is epignosis. And that word epignosis means knowledge that makes a difference. Now, we can all learn stuff, but a lot of the stuff we learn is pretty fluffy and it's not really going to help us very much, is it? But there are other things that we know that can make a difference in our lives. Now, when I was at primary school, I learned that the height of Mount Cook was 1, 2, 3, 4, 9, 12,349 feet high. And that Mount Everest was 8,848 high, but metres, okay, 8,848 metres. Now, say I decided that I was going to go on a scenic flight over Mount Cook, and it was a really cloudy day, and I'm in this plane, and the pilot announces that we're flying at 12,000 feet. Well, that knowledge that I thought may be useful for a trivia quest question or something like that would become very useful at that point because at that height, we were going to crash into the mountain. So there's a big difference between knowledge that makes a difference and other fluffy knowledge that doesn't really mean too much. And so Paul wants his readers to have information that impacts their lives. And we know that God's word is truth. And we can have a revelation of the truths of God's word that can transform our lives. And so in verse 17, he prays that we will have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Who wants to be wise amongst us? Paul wants us to know and understand our wonderful God and to desire more of his wisdom and understanding. And there's that beautiful verse in James chapter 1, verse 5 that says, if anyone lacks wisdom, well, that's me, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. God's wisdom is available to each one of us. Many people have not allowed their knowledge of Jesus to transform their lives. And we can come to an understanding of how God's truth can make us more vital and effective in our lives. And then in verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's a pretty amazing phrase, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Imagine if you're in a completely dark room 
and then someone turns on a powerful torch that uh, drove out all that darkness. And it can be the same in our lives. We've got a lot of darkness in our lives. We've got bad memories, bad thoughts and behaviours. But we can replace all these dark, difficult things with the light of God, with new physical and emotional behaviours that line up with God's word. And then in verse 18, it continues on to say, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints. So the key word here is hope. Do you have hope in your life? In 1927, a ship collided with a submarine off the coast of the United States. And the submarine sank to the bottom of the sea. Its entire crew were trapped. They couldn't get out of that submarine. And then one of the divers heard some tapping on the hull of the submarine. And he realized that it was Morse code. And he listened to the letters. And the letters were sounding out the sentence, Is there any hope. And you know, there's a lot of people in the world today that are asking that question. Is there any hope? Just think of that football team in Thailand that are trapped in that cave. They go off on a little adventure, but then it rains and they can't get back out because their path is blocked. But now some of the best divers in the world are coming to rescue them. And so they can go for three kilometers down water-filled tunnels and they can get to these guys. But they're concerned that with the monsoon rains coming, their chances of getting these boys out is not very high. And so they're thinking, look, we need to get them out now. We need to get them out as soon as possible. Now, when we lived on Niue Island, I did quite a bit of scuba diving. And I did some cave diving as well. And one day, a guy came to the island from the American Science Foundation and the um, Geogra uh, Geographic magazine. And he was doing National Geographic. And he was doing research on insects in caves. And so because I was the head of geography on the island, I took him to all the known caves. But I had discovered another cave that wasn't on any of the maps when I was looking for another cave. And this was just a big hole in the ground, in the jungle. And you could throw a stone down that hole and you'd wait for two or three seconds and you'd hear a big echoing splash sound. And this guy said, we're going down there. I said, are you sure? So we came back with scuba tanks and we abseiled down into this chasm. We got down to where the water was, and he's out there looking, for his, looking at his insects, and then he says, look, at the end of this chasm, there's a tunnel that goes off under, underground. And so he went through that tunnel, and he came up in a pool in another cave. 
And in that cave, he could feel wind. And he knew that there must be another opening somewhere. But we didn't have a line with us to monitor where we were going, and it was dark. And so we got out of there. But one day, I'd quite like to go back and see what's under there. Because in the old days, Nuaeans used to live in caves, hid from their enemies because they could creep up on them at night time. But imagine these guys, they're stuck in that cave. Some of them can't swim. But if they're going to get out, they're going to have to go with experienced divers who are going to show them the way. They're just going to have to trust that these divers are going to help them. The worst thing that you can do when you're scuba diving is panic. Because if you panic, you want to get up to the top as soon as possible. And if you're down below and you're lungs are filled with pressurized air and you rise too quickly, that air expands in your lungs and your lungs can burst or you can get bends. But in this situation, they can't go up, they've got to go along. And so these young guys, instead of panicking, they've just got to, cl they've just got to trust that the person that is leading them knows what he's doing. And often it's the same in our lives, in our relationship with the Lord. We don't know where we're going. It's dark. It's difficult. But we have to say, I trust you, Lord, that you know the way, and I'm going to come with you. But the world is asking that same question. Is there any hope? You know, our schools and the media, they claim that there's no God. This implies that there's no meaning. There's no future. Because hope is the expectation of good things to come. Paul wants us to know and understand the amazing future that each of us has in Jesus Christ. But life in Paul's day was extremely difficult for Christians in Rome. They were burnt at the stake. They were thrown to wild animals. They were persecuted, misunderstood, betrayed by their families. They must have wondered if all of their efforts were worth the effort. But Paul prays that they'll see beyond the difficulties of the present into the exciting future that God has for them. And so that knowledge that our eternal future is secure, that helps us to face our present circumstances. You know, in the old days, I ran a couple of marathons. And if you run a marathon, um, which is 40 kilometers or 26 and a quarter miles, when you've got to about 20 miles, your body runs out of glycogen, which is the main energy source for the body. And they describe it as hitting the wall. You just suddenly feel absolutely worn out. All you want to do is sit down and stop. But you have to push through that barrier. You have to push through that difficulty, that wall. And after you've pushed through for a while, the finish line isn't that far away. And you press on to the finish line. And when you cross that finish line and you know that you've completed the race and you've got a reasonable time and you've done well, you don't think back to how hard it was when you went through the wall. It's exactly how it is in heaven. We have this eternal hope. 
One day we're going to be in the presence of God in a place with no sickness or pain forever and ever. And these short-term difficulties, tribulations, problems that we have in this life are going to amount to very little in comparison. You know, research shows that people who worry about their future and older age actually end up living shorter lives. But we can have the promise of a joyful future in heaven. That will be our home forever. We can turn our stumbling blocks into stepping stones that will carry us upward and onwards. And so in verse 18 to 19, Paul says that we will know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Seems a bit strange. Here's Paul. He's completely powerless in a, in a Roman jail. His future is uncertain. He's lost his freedom. But he's talking about the incredible power that raised Jesus from the dead. And he wants us to know and understand the reality of resurrection power. You know, people struggle with powerlessness today. Worldly philosophies tell us to discover the power that's within us. Yet we often seem powerless even to affect change in our own personal lives. 80% of people who lose weight put it back on again. 65% of people who marry and who divorce and remarry have second marriages that are also unhappy. Young people who vow to never make the same mistakes as their parents often end up tripping over those same difficulties. Even Paul had battled failure and weakness. And he writes about it in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, where he says, I know I am rotten through and through as far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I cannot make myself do the right thing. I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. Is there anyone that feels like that here this morning? That you know that there's stuff that you're doing in your life that's not good? You've tried to change, but it never works. And then in verse 20 in our passage today, Paul gives the solution to the problem. He says that that resurrection power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us, not just in heaven, also in this present age. And so understanding God's resurrection power enables us to be transformed in our lives. Resurrection power can revive our driest and most hopeless situations. Christ's resurrection power delivers us from Satan and the power of sin, death, and evil. 
It gives us salvation and the promise of eternal life. Sometimes we feel stuck. We feel there's no way forward. And when Helen and I had to go to Melbourne, uh, our car wouldn't start. And thankfully, Jackie loaned us her little Suzuki Swift. Now, I'd always been a bit sceptical of Suzuki Swifts because when I was a teenager, Suzuki only made motorbikes. And when they started making cars, I thought, oh, gosh, it's just like a motorbike with a very light chassis on it. And so here I am, blatting, here we are, she came with me, <laughs> blatting up to Auckland and we're late, we're going to miss our plane. And I'm thinking, how are we going to get there on time? Well, this little car, when you got it up to about 3,500 revs and you planted boot, it's a, it's a turbo twin cam and it flies. Seriously, you know, there, were, there was a logging truck and trailer on the road and I'm thinking I'll wait for the next passing bay and, and so get to the passing bay, plant my foot, we're off. There's another truck and trailer just ahead of it. Took that one as well and we're racing up the road there making good time and our son met us at the airport, took the car away, parked it for us and uh, we got there on time. But it was great having that extra power that would get me past slow traffic that in my normal car I wouldn't have been able to get past in, past in the time available. And so power is good when you can tap into it and use it for good purposes. And so we can all ask ourselves, what are the obstacles preventing us from moving forward towards the goals in our life? What dead and impossible areas of your life do you desire God to bring to life? Relationships that have turned sour, finances that may have bottomed out, creativity that's dried up, peace that's been stolen by chaos, a feeling of hopelessness that things are never going to change. A heart that's dead from heartache, sorrow and disappointment. Ask yourself, how would things change if I had some of that resurrection power? Think of that little baby that was born in Bethlehem. Or a wandering teacher with a bunch of fishermen as his disciples. Or that crucified Christ dying in agony on the cross. Yet these were all history's defining moments. Knowing resurrection power is knowing that God is at work in unlikely places. Even through our trials and our difficulties. Which enable Jesus to bring hope and transformation into our lives. In 1939... 263 children died in a school fire in Itasca in Texas. And uh, the school was completely rebuilt and it had the most advanced sprinkler system in the world. Seven years later, they added a new wing to this school and they found that the sprinkler system, the best in the world, had never been connected up to the water supply. And you know, this can be a picture of what happens in our Christian lives. Our lives are ineffective and useless unless we're connected to Jesus, 
the source of living water. His resurrection power is available to each one of us, but only if we're connected to him. Jesus said in John 15 verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, too often we're doing stuff in our own strength. We're not tapping in to the power of God. And then in Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power. This is dumanos. This is real powerful power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses throughout the world. So Jesus brings wholeness and eternal purpose. He brings dead things to life again. See your unhappy marriage as something that God can bring to life. Realize your gifts and talents are important to God and that he will use them to produce eternal fruit. Allow your disillusioned heart to come alive so that you can express his love. Be open to creative ideas and words of wisdom that God will drop into your heart when you're listening for them. And then in verse 20 to 23, God tells us, uh, Paul tells us, how God sat Jesus at his right hand in that place of authority. He lists the powers and authorities over which Jesus has dominion. God's power is greater than demonic forces, angelic beings, disease, plague, weather systems. You know, in Roman times, at the end of the battle, the ruler, the victor who won the battle, stood on the heads of the defeated leaders who lay on the ground in front of him. The people that he had conquered were laying down on the ground in front of him and he put his foot on their heads to show his superiority. Jesus is head of the body. He's head over all things in the heavenlies. He is the head and we are the body. So when it says his feet are on top of all his enemies, if he's the head and we're the body, well, it's also our feet. Our feet have trampled the enemy underfoot. We have the authority of God in our lives over all of these things. And so the problems we may be having with our family are all under his feet. So, are too, so too are the problems in our career, our relationships, our abilities. In Jesus, we have authority over all the power of the enemy. As we surrender to his will, his life flows through us as he guides us and directs us. We are adopted as his children, forgiven, made holy, without blame. We're God's personal treasure and inheritance sealed by the Holy Spirit and belonging to him. God wants us to realize this, to release this, embrace it, and claim it in our own lives this morning. Let's pray. Father God, grant us a fresh revelation of all that you are this morning. Enlighten our understanding so that our eternal hope and calling is made sure. 
And so that we allow your spirit to transform our lives. As your children, we exercise our authority over every evil force that opposes us. In the name of Jesus, amen.